All right, so hello. <laughs> um, <clears throat> welcome to another episode. Um, that rather somber song. Um, I wrote it a while ago and it just seems kind of appropriate to play at the start of this episode. Just open the doors and windows again. <laughs> Otherwise, maybe neighbors will hear too much. Um, yeah, so um, this episode is, um, it's not the one I had planned on doing next, but I'm going to do this one because the other one that I was doing, um, <laughs> it's a pretty massive subject and I kept on adding more books to it. I'm on like four books now that I'm reading for it. Um, so, and there's even another one I found mentioned in uh, the latest book that I'm reading about it. And I'm like, oh God, do I have to get that one as well? Because that's really the thing I was kind of looking for within this whole, uh, within this whole bunch of research. Anyway, so that's going good, but... Yeah, it's taken quite a bit of time um, and I'm a bit disappointed in myself that I didn't get a podcast out in September because I want to get at least one out a month because like if this is something that I want to do, um, if people are going to actually start listening and are following, following along, um, it's kind of nice for if anyone is going to be interested in it, um, it's maybe nicer for them knowing that, oh, at least there's going to be one a month. Like at this, by the looks of it, it's like kind of like around the end of each month. Um, that's how it was going. But um, but there was other complications with the last episode, like the first book that I wanted to... Um, that The first book that I got for the episode, it took two weeks to arrive. So... Yeah, there was certain delays. Um, <laughs> and then that book was actually way too detailed for a general introduction to the subject. Um, but anyway, I'll talk about all that. Hopefully, I think that's going to be the next episode. So um, so that's enough about that. But just today, as an explanation for what this episode is going to be about, um, just today, I on my... Uh, podcast analytics there's the website which hosts my podcast i can look on that and i can see you know how many listens have um, happened each day and uh, and then like the next day you can see like what countries they were in it doesn't come up immediately but anyway so there was a few listens today and a few of them were for um an episode i did a while ago um by ralph waldo emerson and so I was like, oh, cool. Someone's listened to that one again. That's, yeah, I really liked doing that one. In that one, I just read out an essay that I had read years ago. Um, it's an absolutely brilliant essay. And I, I actually re-listened to that, <laughs> most of that episode again today while I was cleaning my house. <laughs> and um, I was like, yeah, wow, this, that was such a great episode. And actually that, um, that episode that I did, yeah, that that essay that I read out, I'm pretty sure it was actually a lecture. So 
me me reading it out uh, and me reading it out was quite appropriate <laughs> and then i was commenting on it as i was going along i'll just get a drink one sec mm. and yeah so yeah i was listening to it again today and i was like god that was a brilliant um lecture and then i was thinking I had said that um, I had read two of his essays before, the one called Self-Reliance and another one called The Poet. Um, and then after I did the episode on Self-Reliance, I did another one of his essays from the same book of lectures called Friendship. I thought they were very good companions, companion episodes. Um, because one is all about, you know, individuality and the other is then all about friendship, which is like... Um, others you know so i thought they were good companions to go together <laughs> um and this time then today i was like you know what i'm a bit disappointed that that this s this current um episode i'm working on is taking longer than i thought so then i was thinking what about that other essay that i had read also before and it was like brilliant i thought anyway um why don't i read that one out because um, like the thing is, I can read out this full essay written by this other person because, um, what's the term again? Um, is it the copyright of it? Um, yeah, the copyright of it has now entered the public domain and that happens in most countries. That happens when the author who originally wrote it has been dead for something like at least 75 years and, um, Ralph Waldo Emerson died in 1882. So basically all of his work is in the public domain. And when a piece of literature or anything goes into the public domain, you don't need permission from any uh, publishers or any authors to do, to, to use the text. You can do anything you want with the text. And because it's now in the public domain, it's not copyrighted. Like, for example, I did um, an essay where I, I did an episode where I, I, rewrote in my own uh i rewrote my own version of the first chapter of ulysses and i think it was only in it was recently like a few years ago that ulysses entered the public domain because <laughs> before it entered the public domain if i did what i did um well actually mine was a version of it although there was certain direct quotes from the from the book so that might have been a problem but um but now that it, that ulysses for example has entered into the public domain anyone can do anything with it that they want um and they don't have to consult any a, any publisher or author um i mean what i did i did it out of total respect and admiration and love for joyce's work so um, yeah, I hope I, I mean, it's, it's like fan fiction, what, what I did. It's like, I, I re retold, um, the first chapter and I kind of emphasized things that I really liked in the first chapter. And I, I put most of it in my own words and, uh, and then I added in some kind of, uh, of my own reflections on that chapter. And I added in some biographical facts about Joyce's life as well into it. Uh, so I played around with it. I, I played around with uh, the chapter, um, taking inspiration from how he wrote the chapter. So anyway, it was a, it was really f fun for me to do. And um, yeah, and I'm just saying, <laughs> um, now that it's in the public domain, 
uh, it's fine for me to do that. Um, so, so yeah, these essays, the two essays by Ralph Waldo Emerson that I read out, they're in the public domain. So I, ca I can just read out the whole thing and there's no problem. Um, but if I take a more recent e essay from some writer and if I just in a, in a podcast episode, if I just read out that whole essay, I think there's copyright issues. Um, I think there seems to be some kind of a fair use clause within this copyright thing. Like if I take just sections of an essay and quote out those sections, if I'm using it for educational purposes, um, I think it's like fair, fair use. Um, so yeah, I, it's just something I have to be aware of. So I'm not doing that. I'm staying away from reading out <laughs> um, t uh, texts that are copyrighted. But I think you can quote a little bit here and there for, from them. Um, so yes. So anyway, so so this episode, I'm probably rambling on here a bit now already. Um, but yeah, I think it's all necessary to explain. Um, so yeah, just like a another another um another kind of delay in the research for this episode is um following what's going on in in palestine um and kind of you know looking into the history of all that so um so yeah also the song i put at the start i just thought it was maybe kind of um yeah it, it's to just kind of um you know, it's a sad time. Um, it's terrible what's going on there. So, um, so yeah, that's a song I had written before. Coincidentally, I actually wrote that last last October, and now it's October again. Um, so yeah, I just uh, put it as the intro to this um, episode to kind of um, maybe harmonize with the very sad uh yeah mood of of this time for anyone who's aware of what's going on in gaza um yeah it's awful so all we can do is hope that there is going to be a ceasefire hopefully um so um to get on to this episode for <laughs> some inspiration um what I've done is I've chosen another episode, another essay from the same guy, Ralph Waldo Emerson. And it's the, ep the essay that I had already read before, which was like really inspirational to me. It just really spoke to me. I mean, I haven't even looked at the first page of this now in, yeah, well over 10 years again, I think. But um, I flicked through it just to see how many pages it is. It's 20 pages long, roughly. So I think that would be like two hours. So what I might do this time is when I get halfway through it, I might check the time. And if it's gone well over an hour, um, I may make this a two-part one. Just because just because I, when I was listening back today to the other episode, to, to the other um, engagement that I did with, um, with his other essay called Self-Reliance, I mean, it's such a brilliant lecture that he wrote, but I noticed that by the end of it, I was quite tired <laughs> and um, it was actually brilliant, everything he said, but at the end of it, I was kind of thinking, hmm, was the first hour of that lecture better than the second? And actually, no, I don't think it was. They were both, it was all brilliant, but I was just a bit tired, I think, because <laughs> it was a live reading and uh, I was commenting on it as I was going along. So 
I'm not sure. I might. We'll see how how this is going. But um, yeah, I'm still not using any editing um, software or anything. I'm just pressing record and then pressing stop when it's uh, finished. So it's totally live. Yeah, live and spontaneous. Um, I don't think there's anything else I need to say. Um, Yeah, so that's the rationale for me choosing this uh, episode. It was that I noticed some people had listened to the other episode that I did about him today. And then I re-listened to most of that episode again myself. And I was like, yeah, wow, that is really... I, I I was thinking like, hmm, is this just kind of like... You know, I'm just reading out an an essay. Like, but then again, like, at the end of the self-reliance essay episode, I was thinking, would it have been better if I had read the whole essay and then put it into my own words and uh, condensed all of the kind of best parts and then just presented those? But, you know, this whole podcast is, yeah, it's about reading and about, yeah, learning from books, essentially. Um... So actually just reading, being able to read out a whole text because it's no, because it's in the public domain, it's actually worth it rather than me just putting it into my own words, you know, because it's, it's the, it's the first hand, first hand uh, information. It's not secondhand by me. Yeah. Someone could do a good job of relaying the best points out of an essay. Sure. But also it's interesting just to see how he writes, how his sentences are, like his style. Um, and actually, you know, it's the essay is from mid 19th century. So there's actually, you know, it's interesting to encounter his style, you know. So if I had put it into my own words, that would be lost, you know. So um, and coincidentally, there was quite a few words that he was using that I was unfamiliar with. Um, and when I was reading out his second essay, the one on friendship. I think it was in the very first sentence. There was there was a completely new word to me. Uh, it was mogra or mogra, mogra. I never heard that before. And when I looked it up, even the online dictionary said that um, Ralph Waldo Emerson was a person who used this phrase or kind of kept this word alive, I think. So it, maybe it was even strange in his day, but he was so well read that he was familiar with it. I think it means in spite of, mogra, mogra, whatever, you know, in spite of this or that, you're still going to do this or that or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I'm just uh, saying that actually reading out a full text yeah, I think it makes sense <laughs> um, in this, in my podcast, because, yeah, it's all about reading. So, so I think I can just crack on with it now. Yeah, this is the thing with um, with not editing. It's like if you forget something, it's like, damn it. <laughs> I really don't think there has been much. I have forgotten, like after an episode, maybe there's like one factor. Yeah, two points that I one little fact in relation to something that I was talking about. And then, you know, when I listened back, I was like, ah, oh, damn, I forgot to say that thing. But anyway, um, oh yeah, just one little correction as well. I already made the correction on my Facebook and Instagram, but in the last episode, I was talking about the Sumerians and I was talking about everything that they gave the world, which is, oh my God, like nearly the, the fundamentals of, of human civilization, um, basically. But um, I got a bit caught up when I was talking about the 60 second uh, 
system that we use um, now, you know, 60 seconds in a minute, uh, 60 minutes in an hour, all that. And like, this is the thing, because when I'm talking, um, if I'm talking, you know, spontaneously, and then I think of something else that comes into my mind, but if I hadn't really prepared that, I can get a little bit like, uh oh, <laughs> shit, I shouldn't have maybe brought that up because I'm not exactly sure of that, but it was uh, there and I just started talking about it. But uh, anyway, so what I was saying is in that last episode, when I got to the point where I was talking about how the Sumerians gave us the 60 second system, I, I started to describe it, but um, I, I didn't follow it through to the end. If I followed it through to the end, I would have figured it out myself on the spot. But basically, I said, if you take your, I'll just say it again. So if you take, if you look at your hand, this is how the Sumerians counted. And this is why we have 60 seconds. If you look at the palm of your hand with your fingers outstretched, uh, I'm looking at my right hand here. And then if I take my thumb and if I point to the first section on my small finger, if you look at each finger, it has three sections. So if I point, if you bend it, you'll see them, those three sections on each, each finger. So basically, there's three sections on each finger. So if you take your thumb, point to the bottom section, the middle section, the top section, that's three. And then you go to the next finger, that's four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. And when you get to twelve, if you're counting above twelve, you put up a thumb your, or one of the fingers on your other hand, that signifies that you've already counted to 12. And then if you start the process again on the other hand, you, you start off with 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, then you get up to 24. And then if you're going above 24, you put up another finger on the other hand. So you're marking off that you have done two rounds of 12. And if you keep on doing that up until the five fingers are up on your other hand, you get 60. So that is why... Um, there is 60 seconds in a minute because the Sumerians counted with their hands. So that's why they divided um, an hour up into uh, 60, 60 minutes and a, and a minute into 60 seconds. So that's why they, uh, yeah, so it's because of that. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah, so that's all the housekeeping and the introduction done. So, so the essay that I've chosen this time Maybe I should turn off my internet. Oh, it's already off. Okay, one sec. So this essay is called The Poet. Um, it really resonated with me, as I said. Um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, he was born in 1803 uh, and he died in 1882. So... That's the time period we're talking about. And this essay was written roughly in the mid-19th century. Um, so, I'll just get on with it. Um, the Poet. This was really um, amazing for me when I first read it, like over 10 years ago, and I'm sure it's going to be just as good now. <laughs> <clears throat> Those who are esteemed umpires of taste. Hmm. Those who are like, gatekeepers, those who are, yeah, authorities in what's good, what's appealing, what's aesthetically appealing, what's good art is what he's saying. Those kind of people are often persons who have acquired some knowledge of admired pictures or sculptures and have an inclination for whatever is elegant. But if you inquire whether they are beautiful souls or whether their own acts are like fair pictures, you learn that they are selfish and sensual. Hmm? Their cultivation is local, as if you should rub a log of dry wood in one spot to produce fire. 
All the rest remaining cold. Hmm. So he's saying that these people have just kind of just spent a lot of time with what maybe people before them have said is good art or something like that. And I think he's getting at, yeah, they've specialized in those pieces, but only because of the opinions of other people, I think is what he's saying here. So immediately I'm thinking of his other essay, Self-Reliance, because <laughs> he's maybe getting at here. These people are just following others, following the status quo of taste, essentially, I think. OK, I'll continue. So all the rest is remaining cold because the other critics or whatever haven't spoke about them. Their knowledge of the fine arts is some study of rules and particulars or some limited judgment of colour or form, which is exercised for amusement or for show. Um, it is a proof of the shallowness of the doctrine of beauty. Hmm as it lies in the minds of our amateurs that men seem to have lost the perception of the instant dependence of form upon soul there is no doctrine of forms in our philosophy we were put into our bodies as fire is put into a pan to be carried out but there is no accurate adjustment between the spirit and the organ much less is the latter the germination of the former the spirit, the organ. So in regard to other forms, the intellectual men do not believe in any essential dependence of the material world on thought and volition. So in regard to other forms, the intellectual men do not believe in any essential dependence on the material world on thought and volition. Theologians think it a pretty air castle to talk of the spiritual meaning of a ship or a cloud, of a city or a contract, but they prefer to come again to the solid ground of historical evidence, and even the poets are contented with civil and conformed manner of living, and to write poems from the fancy at a safe distance from their own experience. Okay. But the highest minds of the world have never ceased to explore the double meaning, or shall I say the quadruple or the septuple, or much more manifold meaning of every sens sensuous fact. Orpheus, Empedocles, Empedocles, Heraclitus, Plato, Plutarch, Dante, Swedenborg, and the masters of sculpture, picture and poetry. For we are not pans and barrows, nor even porters of the fire and torch-bearers, but children of the fire, made of it, and only the same divinity transmuted. And at two or three removes, when we know least about it, and this hidden truth, truth that the fountains, whence all this river of time and its creatures floweth are intrinsically ideal and beautiful draws us to the consideration of the nature and function of the poet or the man of beauty to the means and materials he uses and to the general aspect of art in the present time okay some of that now was a little bit kind of a uh, bit hard to follow <clears throat> but i'll continue um Stay down, page. Page keeps on turning over. Um, the breadth 
of the problem is great, for the poet is representative. He stands among partial men for the complete man and apprises us not of his wealth, but of the commonwealth. The young man reveres men of genius because to speak truly, they are more himself than he. Okay, that was a good sentence. Uh, and this is once again reminding me of um, his essay, Self-Reliance. It's, it's interesting how his philosophy of self-reliance was even in his philosophy on was even in his uh, essay on friendship. And I, I'm seeing it here now again in this essay on poetry. Um, because the young man reveres men of genius because to speak truly, a genius, is relying on himself. And to the young man who's looking at them, they are more himself than he is. They receive of the soul as he also receives, but they are but but they more. He receives of the soul as he also receives, but they more. Hmm. Nature enhances her beauty to the eye of loving men. Nature enhances her beauty to the eye of loving men. Well, yeah, that's what they say, isn't it? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. One person could be in a particular spot somewhere and not looking, <laughs> and another person could be there and be looking <laughs> and uh, seeing things that the other person isn't seeing, perhaps. Uh, nature enhances her beauty to the eye of loving men from their belief that the poet is beholding her shows at the same time. He is isolated among his contemporaries by truth and by his art, but with this consolation in his pursuits that they will draw all men sooner or later. Hmm. Yep. Um, for all men live by truth and stand in need of expression. So yeah, the, the poet is seeking truth and then, he, then he's articulating this truth and all people, you know, I think love truth, most anyway, but they need it to be articulated. So the poet does that. In love, in art, in avarice, in politics... In labor, in games, we study to utter our painful secret. The man is only half himself, the other half is his expression. Wow, cool, yeah, so just emphasizing the importance of being articulate about what you're experiencing. Mm, yeah, otherwise you're a bit helpless. Could be a bit helpless or... Yeah. Notwithstanding this necessity to be published, adequate expression is rare. I know not how it is that we need an interpreter, but the great majority of men seem to be minors who have not yet come into possession on of their own or or mutes who cannot report the conversation they have had with nature. Hmm. That's, yeah, <laughs> the poet or the artist uh, is more, is able to articulate these things. Um, there is no man who does not anticipate a supersensual utility in the sun and stars, earth and water. These stand and wait to render him 
a peculiar service, but there is some obstruction or some excess of phlegm in our constitution, which does not suffer them to yield the due effect, too feeble all the impressions of nature on us to make us artists. Too feeble are all of the impressions, oh, too feeble fall the impressions of nature on us to make us artists. But maybe he's saying artists, yeah, are more sensitive to these uh, impressions. Every, every touch should thrill. Every man should be so much an artist that he could report in conversation what had befallen him. Yet, in our experience, the rays or, hmm, what's this word? A pulses have sufficient force to arrive at the senses. Yet, in our experience, the rays or a pulses have sufficient force to arrive at the senses. We have a whistler outside. But not enough to reach. They can probably hear me talking. Oh, well. <laughs> but not enough to reach the quick and compel the reproduction of themselves in speech. The poet is the person in whom these powers are in balance. The poet is the person in whom these powers are in balance. The man without impediment who sees and handles that which others dream of, traverses the whole scale of experience and is rep is representative of man in virtue of being the largest power to receive and to impart it that's pretty um pretty interesting i'm just thinking of um i think uh, there's a quote about shakespeare i think it was ben johnson he said that shakespeare was the soul of his age And that's what, um, that's what, um, that's what um, Emerson is getting at here. That was a great sentence. I'll read that again. Um, I'll read the, it's a long sentence, five lines long. The poet is the person in whom these powers are in balance and the, ma the man without impediment who sees and handles that which others dream of traverses the whole scale of experience and is representative of man in virtue of being the largest power to receive and to impart it. The largest power. Well, yeah, being sensitive to all these things, but then also having the kind of skill and ability to, to express it, to impart it. Yep. Um... For the universe has three children born at one time which reappear under different names. Hmm. In every system of thought, whether they be called cause, operation and effect, or more poetically, Jove, Pluto, Nep Neptune, what's he getting at here? Or theologically, the father, the spirit and the son, but which we will call here the knower, the doer, and the sayer. Okay, so this is what he's getting at with these uh, artists who 
are sensitive to everything and then articulate it so that everyone has an articulation of those things that maybe they f were feeling as well, but they couldn't express it. Or maybe they missed out on the perception in the first place. <clears throat> and then when they hear it, they're like, hmm, yeah, I agree. <laughs> maybe. Um, these stand respectively for the love of truth, for the love of good and for the love of beauty. Love for the love of truth, the love of good, and the love of beauty. And I'm just kind of thinking here now, does that the love of truth sounds to me a bit like, he's, in a way, okay, he's used different people here. He's used Greek gods. He's used um, kind of Christian terminology. And then he said in more his kind of days terms, he said the knower, the doer, and the sayer. And that they all stand for, uh, the knower is for truth, the doer is for love of good, and the sayer is for beauty. And I'm just thinking now in my, mm, for me at the moment, and in relation to things that I'm interested in and going to be doing other episodes about, I think, um, it sounds like he's talking about grammar, dialectic, and rhetoric, truths is like grammar because grammar is the study of the origin of things so kind of you know the truth behind things kind of getting down to the roots <laughs> the love of good is dialectic that's like clear um clear thinking so you can do the right thing and then the love of beauty is is like what he says the sayer that's like that's the art that's the expression of all of the the other two and that's Rhetoric, art, rhetoric is the art of, um, yeah, oration. Anyway, um, these three are equal, as is the trivium. Um, each is that which, each is that which he is essentially, so that he cannot be surmounted or analyzed. Mm. And each of these three has the power of the others latent in him and his own patent. The poet is the sayer, the namer, and represents beauty. He is a sovereign and stands on the center, for the world is not painted or adorned, but is from the beginning beautiful. And God has not made some beautiful things, but beauty is the creator of the universe. Mm. Therefore, the poet is not any uh, permissive potentate, potentate, not sure what that word is. Therefore, the poet is not any per permissive potentate, but is emperor in his own right. Criticism is infested with a cant of materialism, which assumes that manual skill and activity is the first merit of all men and disparages such as say and do not, overlooking the fact that some men, namely poets, are natural sayers sent into the world to end to the end of expression and confounds them with those who province, whose province is action, but who quit it to imitate the sayers, but who quit it to imitate the sayers.
Mm, but who quit it to imitate the stairs? I'm just gonna close the window for a few minutes. Seems to be someone. <laughs> just a bit off-putting. Um, where was I? Mm -mm. Which assumes that manual skill, blah, blah, blah. Um, poets are natural sayers sent into the world to end to the end of expression and confounds them with those who whose province is action but who quit it to imitate the sayers i think he's saying that the men of action come around to the men of sayers because articulation is so appealing um and beneficial but homer's words are as costly and admirable excuse me, to Homer as Agamemnon's victories are to Agamemnon. But Homer's words are as costly are as costly and admirable to Homer as Agamemnon's victories. Oh my God, victories, I just ate, sorry. <laughs> but Homer's words are as costly and admirable to Homer as Agamemnon's victories are to Agamemnon. The poet does not wait for the hero or the sage but as they act and think primarily, so he writes primarily what will and must be spoken. Reckoning the others, though primaries also, yet in respect of him, secondaries and servants, as sitters or models in the studio of a painter, or as assistants who bring building materials to an architect. Hmm. For poetry was all written before time was and whenever we are so finely organized that we can penetrate into that region where the air is music we hear those primal warblings and attempt to write them down and we lose ever and anon a word or a verse and substitute something of our own and thus miswrite the poem the men of more delicate ear write down these cadences more faithfully, and these transcripts, though imperfect, become the songs of the nations. Wow, that was uh, nice. About, yeah, once again, an artist kind of getting out of the way of the thing he's trying to express. Um, he's saying if, if the artist kind of like, yeah, kind of like if they can get into a kind of a selfless state um, and just... Um, tune into the thing that they're trying to express it will come out better maybe is what he's trying to get at <clears throat> um, for nature is a truly beautiful is as truly beautiful as it is good for nature is as truly beautiful as it is good or as it is reasonable and must as much appear as it must be done or be known that was a kind of a tricky sentence. For nature is as truly beautiful as it is good, or as it is reasonable, and must as much appear as it must be done or be known. What the? Words and deeds are quite in different modes of the divine energy. Words are also actions, and actions are a kind of words. Sure. The sign and credentials of the poet are that he announces or she announces that which no man or woman foretold. He is 
the true and only doctor. He knows and tells. She is the only teller of news. For she, interchangeable with he, <laughs> I'll do it every second one maybe. Um, for he was present and privy to the appearance which he describes. He is a beholder of ideas and an utterer of the necessary and casual. For we do not speak now of men of poetical talents or of industry and skill in metre, but of the true poet. I took part in a conversation the other day concerning a recent writer of lyrics, which is poems, a man of subtle mind whose head appeared to be a music box of delight, de delicate tunes and rhythms, <laughs> and whose skill and command of language we could not sufficiently praise. But when the question arose whether he was not only a lyricist, a lyricist, but a poet, we were obliged to confess that he is plainly a contemporary, not an eternal man. Mm. He does not stand out of our low limitations. He does not stand out of our low limitations, like Chimborazo, I don't know who that is, under the line, running up from the torrid base through all the climates of the globe, with belts of the herbage of every latitude, on its high and mottled sides. But the genius is the landscape garden of a modern house. But this genius is the landscape... Ah, okay, he's just making the comparison about why this poet was mm, learned more so than inherently talented. <laughs> But this genius, who is learned, is the landscape garden of a modern house adorned with fountains and statues with well-bred men and women standing and sitting in the walks and terraces we hear through all the varied music the ground tone of conventional life we hear through all the varied music the ground tone of conventional life okay so this yeah this poet is just kind of talking about um, society Our poets are men of talents. Our poets are men of talents who sing and not the children of music. Our poets are men of talent who sing and are not the children of music itself, is what he means. The argument is secondary. secondary. The finish of the verses is primary. Nice. So he's kind of saying that like... Uh, technique was um, kind of more prized in the mind of this poet than passion or inspiration was, I think is what he's kind of getting at. For it is not meters, but a meter-making argument that makes a poem. Yeah, I agree. A thought so passionate and alive that like the spirit of a plant or an animal, it has an architecture of its own and adorns nature with a new thing. Yeah, that's very cool. That's like, yeah, if you just <laughs> have some idea that you're so passionate about, um, it will create a new kind of form rather than you tr having some idea and then trying to warp it into some preconceived form. Um The, the thought, 
I'm just thinking <laughs> about how I write poems. One sec. Yeah, I, I, I never follow like, you know, rhyming patterns or anything like that. Um, but anyway, I won't go on about my own poetry. Um, the thought and the form are equal in the order of time. But in the order of Genesis, the thought is prior, meaning before the form. Yes, exactly. The poet has a new thought. He has a whole new experience to unfold. He will tell us how it was with him and all men will be the richer in his fortune. Yeah, cool. Self-reliance. Articulate things from your own uh, experience. <laughs> Trust yourself. You can do it. <laughs> um, cut this fucking head off. No. Uh, what film was that? Don't remember. Anyway, um, Waterboy, something like that. Yeah, anyway, um, really over-the-top uh, <laughs> enthusiasm. Anyway, um, for the experience of each new age requires a new confession, and the world seems always waiting for its poet. I remember when I was young how much I was moved one morning by tidings, like news, that genius had appeared in a youth who sat near me at table. Some new artists coming on the scene. He had left his work and gone rambling, none knew where, and had written hundreds of lines, but could not tell whether that which was in him was therein told. He could not, he could tell nothing, but that all was changed. So he wrote, this guy wrote all this stuff, but then he wasn't sure if anyone had ever said it before. So, but he could tell that something was different. Man, beast, heaven, earth, and sea. He could tell nothing, but that all was changed. Man was changed, beast, heaven, earth, and sea. How gladly we listened. How credulous, how believable. Society seemed to be compromised. Society seemed to be compromised. We sat in the aurora of a sunrise, which was to put out all the stars. Cool. Boston seemed to be at twice the distance it had the night before, or was much farther than that. Rome, what was Rome? Plutarch and Shakespeare were in the yellow leaf and homer no more should be heard of because this new poet was just he was like contemporary and he was he was being what they were in their time which was um true to themselves and that's what made them great and i'm, I'm just totally reminded of his other essay self-reliance um yep um it is much to know that poetry has been written this very day. I'm reminded of, <laughs> um, he said that, what was it? Um, everything that's living is in the sun and everything that has passed is in the shade. So yeah, all of these geniuses, Shakespeare and whatnot. Yes, genius is great, but essentially they're in the shade now. And we need, we need people who are alive, who are doing the same thing now you know it's not all in the past we can do it too it's happening now be it go do it <laughs> um 
uh, where was I? Yeah, see, Plutarch and Shakespeare were in the yellow leaf. I think that means like, you know, the pages have gone yellow. And Homer no more should be heard of. It is much to know that poetry has been written this very day, under this very roof, by your side. What? That wonderful spirit has not expired. Yes, these stony moments um, are still sparkling and animated. I had fancied that the oracles were all silent and nature had spent her fires. And behold, all night from every pore, these fine auroras have been streaming. Everyone has some interest in the advent of the poet and no one knows how much it may concern him. We know that the secret of the world is profound, but who or what shall be our interpreter? We know not. Well, the poet is apparently. A mountain ramble, a new style of face, a new person may put the key into our hands. Of course, the value of genius to us is in the veracity of its report. Talent may frolic and juggle. Genius realizes and adds nice realizes and adds mankind in good earnest have availed so far in understanding themselves and their work that the foremost watchman on the peak announces his news mankind in good earnest have availed so far in understanding themselves and their work that the foremost watchman on the peak announces his news it is the truest word ever spoken, and the phrase will be the fittest, most musical, and the unerring voice of the world for that time. The soul of the age, essentially, the soul of the age, the zeitgeist, that's actually, that's literally the, the soul of the age. Zeitgeist means the spirit of the time. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, <clears throat> which one am I on? Yeah. All that we call sacred history attests that the birth of a poet is the principal event in chronology. Man, never so often deceived, still watches for the arrival of a brother who can hold him steady to a truth until he has made it his own. Nice. With what joy I begin to read a poem which I confide in as an inspiration, and now my chains are to be broken. I shall mount above these clouds and opaque airs in which I live, opaque though they seem transparent, and from the heaven of truth I shall see and comprehend my relations. Nice. That will reconcile me to life and renovate nature, like a new articulation and understanding, you know, put out by some artist, will reconcile me to life, will help me understand life and get on with it and be inspired that it's knowable and that it's, um, um, yeah, alive and inspiring. Um, to see trifles animated by a tendency and to know what I am doing. That will reconcile me to life and renovate nature. 
to see trifles animated by a tendency and to know what I am doing. And to know what I am doing, I don't really get that. Life, next page, life will no more be a noise. Now I shall see men and women and know the signs by which they may be discerned from fools and satans. This day shall be better than my birthday. Then I became an animal. Now I am invited into the science of the real. Cool. Such is the hope, but the fruition is postponed. Oftener it falls that this winged man who will carry me into the heaven whirls me into the clouds, then leaps and frisks about with me from cloud to cloud, still affirming that he is bound heavenward, and I, being myself a novice, am slow in perceiving that he does not know the way into heaven, and is merely bent that I should admire his skill to rise, like a fowl or a flying fish, a little way from the ground or the water, but the all-piercing, all-feeding, and ocular air of heaven, that man shall never inhabit, that man shall never inhabit, so this poet, so-called poet, um, is claiming to get people there, but really he's not. I tumble down again, some of them he's saying, others do, others don't. I tumble down again soon into my old nooks mm, and lead the life of exaggerations as before and have lost my faith in the possibility of any guide who can lead me thither, <laughs> thither, where I would be. So yeah, this is about, yeah, about real artists versus not so real ones. Um, but leaving these victims of vanity, <laughs> these victims of vanity, the not so real artists, let us with new hope observe how nature by worthier impulses has ensured the poet's fidelity to his office. One second, I'm just going to open the window again. Here. Once again, I uh, in in my episode where I read out my short story, I um, I spoke about this house that I'm living in and the situation with me having to leave the goddamn windows open all the time. Um, I spoke about that. It's the flooring in here. It has that plasticky smell and I seem to be, well, I think anyone would be sensitive to it. But anyway, um, so yeah, that's why the window's open. That's why I'm playing around with the windows here. Anyway, uh, back to it. Um, oh yeah, I was just saying, I uh, in my episode where I read out my first short story, I explained that situation in that story. You can check it out. I think it's like episode seven or something. Um but leaving these victims of vanity, let us with new hope observe how nature, by worthier impulses, has ensured the poet's fidelity to his office of announcement and affirming, namely by the beauty of things, which becomes a new and higher beauty when expressed. Nature offers all her creatures to him as a picture language, being used as a type a second wonderful value appears in the object. Being used as a type, a second wonderful value appears in the object. Far better than its old value, as the carpenter's stretched cord, if you hold your ear close enough, 
is music musical in the breeze? Hmm. Things more excellent than every image. Things more excellent than every image, says Jamblichus. Don't know who that is. Are expressed through images. Things more excellent than than every image image are expressed through images. Things admit of being used as symbols because nature is a symbol in the whole and in every part. Every line we can draw in the sand has expression. And there is no body without its spirit or genius. All form is an effect of character. All condition of the of the quality of the life. All condition of the quality of the life. All harmony of health. And for this reason, a perception of beauty should be sympathetic or proper only to the good. The beautiful rests, the beautiful rests on the foundations of the necessary. The soul makes the body as the wise Spencer teaches, so every spirit, as it is most pure, and hath in it the more of heavenly light, so it the fairer body doth procure, to habit in, and it more fairly dight, that's a weird word, dight, does, I think is what they're trying to say, this is older English here, for anyone who's Eng- who um, doesn't have English as a first language, may never, encou- may never have encountered these phrases before. So every spirit, as it is more pure, if it is more pure, has in it the more heavenly light. So, I mean, every spirit, as it is more pure, and hath in it the more of heavenly light, so it the fairer body, so it gets a fairer body, a prettier body, mm, really, appearances, body, to habit in, and it more fairly dight, I'm not sure what this word means, dight does maybe, with cheerful grace and amiable sight, for of the soul the body form does, for of the soul the body form does take. For soul is form, and doth the body make. Okay. Mm, maybe they're not exactly just talking about um, appearances, like a like a like an artist is beautiful or something like this, but literally on the inside, <laughs> like beautiful in what they are able to uh, create and what they're able to perceive and articulate. I'm just, um, I was reminded of um, Plato's theory of the soul, just when they're talking here about, you know, so every spirit, the more it's pure, the more it has heavenly light in it, all that kind of stuff. I'm just reminded of um, Plato's conception of uh, the soul. Uh, I mean, the Greeks believed in what's called, referred to as the transmigration of souls. Basically, it's reincarnation. Metempsychosis, I believe, is the Greek term. And Plato, in one of his books, talks about, (laughs) I don't know how he knows this, but um, what the soul goes through before each 
reincarnation. And it was something like um, the soul has is in a chariot and it has to fly somewhere. And it's like there's a there's a good horse and a bad horse. And if the soul cannot keep the bad horse in control, then in this um, in this uh, pre-human uh, realm, if the soul can't keep the bad horse in line with the good one, let's say, then he won't rise up in this realm and then he won't be as, let's say, kind of blessed or as endowed with light, um, if you like, with light um, or goodness or whatever, purity, whatever word you want to use. Um, and yeah, that's that's Homer, that's, sorry, that's uh, Plato's ver, um, kind of story about um, how maybe some people are born more, I don't know, virtuous or more, I don't know, you know, <laughs> it's just very interesting that, uh, yeah, that story uh, in, in, I'll probably get onto it one day. I'll definitely be doing podcasts about Plato. Podcast about Plato, Plato, <laughs> a podcast about Plato, Plato. Um, so here we find ourselves suddenly not in a critical speculation, but in, in a holy place and should go very warily and reverently. We stand before the secret of the world there where being passes into appearance and unity into variety. The universe is the externization of the soul. Wherever the life is that bursts into appearance around it, our science is sensual and therefore superficial. The earth and the heavenly bodies, physics and chemistry, we sensually treat as if they were self-existent, but these are the retinue of that being we have. Nice. I'm tempted to mention something um, that I'm reading about for the next episode. <laughs> it's just pressing on my mind here because what he's talking about here is uh, is rem reminding me of it, but I won't. I'll keep it all, keep the next episode as a surprise for now. Um, although, I mean, I'm talking to pos to posterity here <laughs> i'm talking to a future lis future listenership hopefully um right now i'm still just trying to find uh yeah an audience of people who like this podcast who like podcasts um yeah it's a slow process building up um an audience but yeah i do believe in what i'm doing it's really stimulating for me all this stuff so it's probably, hopefully, going to be stimulating for other people too. Um, back to it. Um, he was talking about, yeah, mm, about uh, science and kind of physical nature of the world. And then uh, we sens sensually treat as if they were self-existent. But these are the retinue of that being we have. The mighty heaven, said Proclus, exhibits in its transfigurations clear images of the splendor of intellectual perception. Being moved in conjunction with the unapparent periods of intellectual natures. What? Didn't get my head around that at all. Said it, but it didn't go in. Um, 
Therefore, science always goes abreast with the just elevation of the man, keeping step with religion and metaphysics. Therefore, science always goes abreast with the just elevation of the man, keeping step with religion and metaphysics, or the state of science is an index of our self-knowledge. Nice. The state of science is an index. The state, the state of our scientific understanding is kind of the, the, the measure of our self-understanding. Hmm. Since everything in nature answers to a moral power, if any phenomenon remains brute and dark, it is that the corresponding faculty in the observer is not yet active. Yeah. Yep. If anything is brute or dark, it just needs... It needs... Um... It needs subtle articulations <laughs> to bring light uh, to the situation. No wonder then if these waters be so deep that we hover over them with a religious regard. The beauty of the fable proves the importance of the sense. To the poet and to all others, or, if you please, every man is so far a poet as to be susceptible of these enchantments of nature. For all men have the thoughts whereof the universe is the celebration. I find that the fascination resides in the symbol. Who loves nature? Who does not? Is it only poets and men of leisure and cultivation who live with her? No, but also hunters, farmers, grooms, and butchers, they, though they express their affection in their choice of life and not in their choice of words. The writer wonders what the coachman or the hunter values in riding in horses and dogs. It is not superficial qualities. When you talk with him, he holds that these... When you talk with him, he holds that these at as slight a rate... Oh my God. When you talk with him, he holds these at as slight a rate as you. He, his worship is sympathetic. He has no definitions, but he is commanded in nature by the living power which he feels to be there present. No imitation or playing of these things would content him. No imitation or playing of these things would content him. He loves the earnest of the north wind, of rain, of stone and wood and iron. A beauty not explicable is dearer than a beauty which we can see to the end of. A beauty not explicable is dearer than a beauty which we can explain. Perhaps is what he's saying. It is... It is nature, the symbol, nature certifying the supernatural body overflowed by life, which he worships with, with coarse but sincere rites. The inwardness and mystery of this attachment drives men of every class to the use of emblems. The inwardness of, uh, and mystery of this attachment drives men of every class to you to the use of emblems, symbols. The schools of poets and philosophers 
are not more intoxicated with their symbols than the populace with theirs. In our political parties, compute the power of badges and emblems. See the great ball which they roll from Baltimore to Bunker Hill. In the political processions, Lowell goes in a loom and Lynn in a shoe and Salem in a ship. Witness the cider barrel, the log cabin, the hickory stick, the palmetto, and all the cognizances, <laughs> cognizances of party. See the power of national emblems. Some stars, lilies, leopards, a crescent, a lion, an eagle, or other figure, um, which came into credit... God knows how, on an old rag of bunting, blowing in the wind, blowing in the wind, um, on a fort at the ends of earth shall make the blood tingle under the rudest or the most conventional exterior. The people fancy they hate poetry and they all, and they are all poets and mystics. Because he's saying we live by symbols. Um, it's just that um, maybe poets' symbols are newer and the other symbols that we live by are more, we're so used to them, we're like numb to them as symbols, is what he is saying. Yes. Beyond this, because as in the, I think, Coleridge, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, he has a phrase and it's poetry removes the film of familiarity from the world. So, um, yeah, that's, I mean, and Coleridge was a contemporary of this guy. Um, the film meaning like, you know, cling film, like that plastic, let's say you put over food, for example, that's kind of a film. Um, yeah, it's like this veil of, um, veil of, um, desensitized, uh, feeling <laughs> a veil of, uh, cliche, a veil of normality, it's not fresh or new or you're not wondering about it. You're just, um, you're, what's the word? Taking it for granted. Yeah. Mm, where was I? The people fancy they hate poetry and they are all poets and mystics. Beyond this universality of the symbolic language. <coughs> Excuse me. We are appraised of the divineness of this superior use of things whereby the world is a temple whose walls are covered with emblems pictures and commandments of the deity in this that there is no fact in nature which does not carry the whole sense of nature and the distinctions which we make in events and in affairs of low and high honest and base disappear when nature is used as a symbol Thought makes everything fit for use. The vocabulary of an omniscient man would embrace words and images. Oh. The vocabulary of an omniscient man would embrace words and images excluded from polite conversation. 
what would be base or even obscene to the obscene becomes illustrious, spoken in a new connection of thought. The pity, the piety of the Hebrew prophets purges their grossness. The piety of the Hebrew prophets purges their grossness. Their grossness? The circumcision is an example of the power of poetry to raise the low and offensive. The circumcision is an example of the power and poetry, power of poetry to raise the low and offensive. Small and mean things serve as well as great symbols. The meaner the type by which a law is expressed, the meaner the type by which a law is expressed, the more pungent it is and the more lasting in the memories of men. Such as, just as we choose the smallest box or case in which any needful utensil can be carried. Bare lists of words are found suggestive to an imaginative and excited mind. Yep. Bare lists of words are found suggestive to an imaginative and excited mind. <laughs> I'm just thinking of some Red Hot Chili Pepper lyrics. He often just doesn't, it's not even sentences. He's just putting words um, one after the other. They're unconnected, but when they're just put like that, it evokes things. Um, I'll go on. Um, um Bare lists of words are found suggestive to an imaginative and excited mind, as it is related to Lord Chatham, don't know who that is, that he was accustomed to read in Bailey's Dictionary when he was preparing to speak in Parliament. Bare lists of words are found suggestive to an imaginative and excited mind, as it is related of Lord Chatham that he was accustomed to read in Bailey's Dictionary. He was reading just from a dictionary when he was preparing to speak in Parliament. He was just learning words. Um, the poorest experience is rich enough for all the purposes of expressing thought. The poorest experience... Why covet a knowledge of new facts, day and night, house and garden, a few books, a, f a few actions, serve us as well as would all trades and all spectacles. We are far from having exhausted the significance of the few symbols we use. We can come to use them yet with a terrible simplicity. It does not need that a poem should be long. Every word was once a poem, indeed. Every new relation is a new word. Every new relation is a new word. Um, also, we use defects and deformities to a sacred purpose, so expressing our sense that the evils of the world are such only to the evil eye. In the old mythology, mythologists observe defects are ascribed to divine natures as lameness to Vulcan, blindness to Cupid and the like to signify exuberance. For as it is dislocation and detachment, something going on my phone here, um, 
For as it is dislocation and detachment from the life of God that makes things ugly. I'm just reminded again now from the self-reliance essay. I remember him saying he sees action, any action, all action as a prayer. <laughs> That's a pretty miraculous conception of of everything, of daily life, yeah. Um, for as it is dislocation and detachment from life, for as it is dislocation and detachment from the life of God that makes things ugly, the poet who reattaches things to nature and the whole, or God, reattaching even artificial things and violations of nature to nature, to nature by a deeper insight, disposes very easily of the most disagreeable facts. Disposes very easily of the most disagreeable facts. Readers of poetry see the factory village and the railway and fancy that the poetry of the landscape is broken up by these. For these works of art are not yet consecrated in their reading. But the poet sees them fall within the great order, not less than the beehive or the spider's geometrical web. Nature adopts them very fast into her vital circles and the gliding train of cars she loves like her own. Besides, in a centred mind, it signifies nothing how many mechanical inventions you exhibit Besides, in a centred mind, it signifies nothing how many mechanical inventions you exhibit. Though you add millions and never go surprising, the fact of mechanics has not gained a grain of weight. The spiritual fact remains unalterable by many or by few particulars. As no mountain is of any appreciable height to break the curve of the sphere, Hmm, some of these sentences are not landing with me. <laughs> um, a shrewd country boy goes to the city for the first time and the complacent citizen is not satisfied with his little wonder. It is not that he does not see all the fine houses and know that he never saw such before, but he disposes of them as easily as the poet finds place for the railway. The chief value of the new fact is to enhance the great and constant fact of life, which can dwarf any and every circumstance, and to which the belt of wampum and the commerce of America are alike. Hmm, some of these references I'm not getting. Um, there's only one more page left, and then I'm halfway through it, and then I'll check the time and see how we're doing. Might just try to do an overview then. Um, the world being thus put under the mind for verb and noun. The word, the world being thus put under the mind for verb and noun. The poet is he who can articulate it. For though life is great and fascinates and absorbs, and though all men are intelligent of the symbols through which it is named, yet they cannot originally use them. We are symbols and inhabit symbols 
workman, work and tools, words and things, birth and death, all are emblems or symbols. But we sympathize with the symbols and being infatuated with the economical uses of things, we do not know that they are thoughts. The poet, by an ulterior intellectual perception, gives them a power which makes their old use forgotten and puts eyes and a tongue into every dumb and inanimate object. He perceives the independence of the thought on the symbol, the stability of the thought, the the accidency and fugacity of the symbol. Fugacity? Don't know what that word means. As the eyes of hmm, Linceus were said to some some mythological character probably, as the eyes of Linceus were said to see through the earth, so the poet turns the world to glass and shows us all things in their right series and procession. Nice. For through that better perception, he stands one step nearer to things and sees the flowing or metamorphosis perceives that thought is multiform, that within the form of every creature is a force impelling it to ascend into a higher form, everything is striving, and following with his eyes the life, uses the forms which express that life, and so his speech flows with the flowing of nature. All the facts of the animal economy, sex, nutriment, gestation, birth, growth, are symbols of the passage of the world into the soul of man. To suffer there a change and reappear a new and higher fact. To suffer there a change and reappear a new and higher fact. He uses forms according to the life and not according to the form. This is true of science. The poet alone knows astronomy, chemistry, vegetation and animation, for he does not stop at these facts, but employs them as signs. He knows why the plain or meadow of space was so strewn with these flowers we call suns and moons and stars, why the great deep is adorned with animals, with men, and gods, for in every word he speaks, he rides on them as the horses of thought. By virtue of this science, the poet is the namer or language maker, naming things sometimes after their appearance, sometimes after their essence, and giving to every one its own name and not another's, thereby thereby rejoicing the intellect which delights in detachment or boundary, thereby thereby rejoicing the intellect which delights in detachment or boundary. The poets made, the poets made all the words, and therefore language is the archives of history, and if we must say it, a sort of tomb of the muses. Wow, that's a cool one. So all, like you said, all words were originally like metaphors. Um, so each one was a hard-earned achievement. So all language that we use is like, wow, it's, um, yeah, it's just so every single word is 
so uh, historical. <laughs> um, I can probably formulate some better um, thought on that after the podcast. I'll think about it. I'll scratch my head for a while on that. Um, the poets made all the words and therefore language is the archives of history. And if we must say it, a sort of tomb of the muses. For though the origin of most of our words is forgotten, this is where etymology comes in, each word was at first a stroke of genius and obtained currency because for the moment it symbolized the world to the first speaker and to the hearer. The etymologist finds the deadest word to have been once a brilliant picture. Language is fossil poetry. There you go. That's kind of what I was thinking <laughs> when he was saying, um, where is it? Uh, language is a sort of tomb of the muses. Then he has thought about it, obviously, quite a lot. And he came up with language is fossilized poetry. Very cool. As the limestone of the continent consists of infinite masses of the shells of animalcules, some kind of sea life maybe, so language is made up of images or tropes which now, in their secondary use, have long ceased to remind us of their poetic origin. But the poet names the thing because he sees it or comes one step nearer to it than any other. This expression or naming is not art. This expression or naming is not art, but a second nature grown out of the first as a leaf out of a tree. What we call nature is a certain self-regulated motion or change, and nature does all things by her own hands and does not leave another to baptize her, but baptizes herself, and this through the metamorphosis, and this through the metamorphosis again. I remember that a certain poet described it to me thus, Genius is the activity which repairs the decay of things. Yeah, I remember that from reading this the first time around. Whether wholly or partly of a material and finite kind. Nature, through all her kingdoms, ensures herself. Nobody cares for planting the poor fungus, so she shakes down from the gills of one agaric countless spores any one of which being preserved transmits new billions of spores tomorrow or or next day the new agaric that's like fungi fungus spores i think the new agaric of this hour has a chance which the old one had not this atom of seed is thrown into a new place not subject to the accidents which destroyed its parent to two rods off what she makes a man and having brought him to ripe age, she will no longer run the risk of, of losing this wonder at a blow. But she detaches from him a new self that the kind may be safe from accidents to which the individual is exposed. He's talking about um, the kind of um, beings having offspring to... I'm not really sure what he's getting at here. I have an idea for the rest of this episode. Uh, I'll just finish this page three lines so when the soul of the poet has come to ripeness of thought she detaches and sends away from it its poems or songs 
a fearless, sleepless, deathless progeny, which is not exposed to the accidents of the weary kingdom of time. All right, so I've got I've gone now through halfway in this. Uh, let me see how much. My God, an hour and a half. Yeah. Whoa. If I were to continue, that this would be such a long episode. So, I think what I'll do here now is, I don't know if I am gonna read the whole the rest of it in another episode. But what I might do here is, um, I could just read out the underlined bits. Although there's quite a lot, <laughs> probably that would be another. Um, oh well, no. Okay, I'll give that a go. So, um, thirty-seven. Oopsie. Mm, what do I have here? Um, the poet also resigns himself to his mood, and that thought which agitated him expressed but alter item in a manner totally new the expression of is organic or the new type which things themselves take when liberated imagination is a very high sort of seeing which does not come by study but by the intellect being where and what it sees, by sharing the path or circuit of things through forms, and so making them translucid to others. The path of things is silent. Will they suffer a speaker to go with them? A spy they will not suffer? A lover, a poet, is the transcendency of their own nature? Him they will suffer. Um, The poet knows that he speaks adequately, then only when he speaks somewhat wildly or with the flower of the mind. Okay, I'll just pick a few from each page. So, um, Men have really got a new sense and found within their world another world or nest of worlds for the metamorphosis once seen, we divine that it does not stop. If thou fill, if you will fill your brain with Boston and New York, with fashion and covet, covet, uh, covet what the hell is this word? Covetousness. <laughs> uh, is that kind of like uh, lustfulness? And wilt stimulate thy jaded senses with wine and French coffee, thou shalt find no radiance of wisdom in the lonely waste of the pine woods. Talking about overstimulation there, is he? Mm. Um, I think I'll just kind of leave it at that because maybe these sentences by themselves are not so uh, understandable. Art is the path of the creator to his work. The paths or methods are ideals and eternal. Though few men ever see them, not the artist himself for years or for a lifetime, unless he comes into the conditions. Uh. O poet, a new nobility is conferred in groves and pastures, and not in castles, or by the sword blade. A new nobility is conferred in groves and pastures, and not in castles or by the sword blade any longer. The conditions are hard but equal. Thou shalt leave the, the world and know the muse only. Thou shalt 
not know any longer the times, customs, graces, politics, or opinions of friends, but take all from the muse. Yeah, I like that one. Um, how does it end? Thou shouldest walk the world over. Thou shalt not be able to find a, a condition inappropriate or ignoble if one is a poet, I guess he's saying. Um, I'll leave it at that. Um, just, yeah, um, yeah, half of the essay from... I, I must say, I think when I read that the first time round, it was much left much more of an imp impression on me. There were certain parts of it that left a real impression on me. Um, and, and, and in a way, you know, this is like what he's talking about in the essay. It's like, you know, when, when we read something that's new to us, it can have a big impression on us. Like me, when I read this first time round and here, when I read it, this time around, I'm remembering certain parts of this essay. I remember how, how they felt to me when I read, read it the first time around. And here, when I read it again, yeah, it's for me, it's not as revelatory because I've already had the revelation. <laughs> so it's a bit, um, I mean, it's still good. This essay was a little bit hard to follow. I must say, um, in relation to the other ones, or else I'm just not concentrating well today. I'm not sure, but um, some sentences there were a bit sticky and hard to get my head around. But um, but yeah, when I read, I mean, maybe anyone listening to this for the first time, maybe it was as good for you as it was for me the first time. But um, maybe that is the case. Maybe that is the case um, because I've, you know, this essay has sunk into me over a long time and I've, uh, you know, it's, it's in there <laughs> in me for a long time now. So maybe, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, that's just it. Like it's not as revelatory to me this time around, but I, I can still definitely appreciate it. Um, yeah, like I'm already interested to listen back to what I just said because, um, yeah, I am. <laughs> I think I'm going to go do that now. Anyway, as I always nearly forget to say, um, how will I say it this time? Um, so yeah, this whole podcast thing, I am, it, for me, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's still a project that I think, um, is of benefit to me to do. Um, because all this stuff, I'm obviously really interested in it and, uh, it's a, for me, it's a really great way to, um, kind of stimulate myself to, to really, I mean, I would engage with these things anyway, but the, the part where I'm talking about these things is putting me to the test to, um, prove to myself that I really did get something from, um, whatever I was reading. Um, if you've listened to any other episodes, you know that normally I will, you know, read some book or even a few books on a subject and then I will work with, you know, like a page or two of bullet points that I, that are the main points. And then I'll talk, um, just around those bullet points from memory. Um, 
just to prove to myself that I have learned the thing I was reading about. Um, yeah, and so, yeah, I'm just saying, once again, if you like this episode or if you like the podcast in general, um, if you would be so kind <laughs> as to uh, share it somewhere, that would be a really big help for me because that's the, that's where I'm at right now, trying to get this out. Um so yeah, I plan on doing one a month, you know, and I post stuff on my Facebook and Instagram. So if you want to follow there, that would be cool. Uh, don't be shy, say hi. Um, it would be great to get some kind of, uh, yeah, discussions going, some kind of comments and stuff going on the Instagram or Facebook. That would be nice. Uh, some feedback would be always very welcome. Um, and then if you are a person who... Um, yeah, if you have a stable enough kind of situation where you, um, if you're liking this, um, if you have a stable enough situation where you could give like the price of a coffee uh, once a month, that would be great. Because uh, as I say in other episodes, like I studied art in college and it's, you know, it's I that kind of a, a direction. Um you know, with the podcast and I'm writing things, I have writing projects go going on now. And even recently, I've started thinking about my visual art. Um, I've started kind of, yeah, I've started drawing again with that. And yeah, basically, this is where I want to go in my life. I, um, I've been working in this kind of direction since I left art college. Um, so... To, but to make a life out of it, you need to <laughs> make an income. Um, so if I could get a bit of income from the podcast, that would be great because um, it allows you more time to to do it. If you get enough money, you can stop working your day job and transition into being like, yeah, a full-time artist. And that's my dream. That's what I'm working towards. I have writing projects on the go. Um that's a matter of getting published by other people. I'm trying to do that. But I also like the idea of self-publishing on the podcast. Like I like I said, I already self-published one story and I really liked that um, because I was happy with it. So I, when, I, if I, when I write another one, uh, I might write it because I have ideas for certain um, writing projects that are for maybe a publisher, but I have other ideas that would be more suitable, not more suitable, but that I'm going to use on the podcast, I think. So, um, yeah. So if, if you want to support an artist, <laughs> if you think it's worth it, um, I would be really, really grateful. Um, yeah, I would be very grateful. Um, so yeah, if you can, if you like the podcast, please do share it on your social media. That would be a major help to me to get it out to other people so other people have the chance of checking it out to see if they like it too. And then if anyone has the, yeah, has the, um, yeah, has a comfortable, comfortable enough situation where that they could afford, you know, price, price of a coffee once a month to help support an artist who's trying to make art and trying to share, um, yeah, trying to share a lot here. <laughs> if you think it's uh, something that's um, useful and something that's good and something I can give people uh, 
yeah, new experiences or add to people's life, things like that, or if it adds to your own life, you know, then uh, if you could show some uh, appreciation either by simple commentary or sharing it with other people or, yeah, the or going so far as to uh, support it financially with a little generous price of a cup of coffee once a month, that would be fantastic. Um, so, yeah. You surely know that the podcast is called Oral Otium. Oral Otium. You can uh, see it on the Spotify or wherever you're listening to this. So that's it. I'll I'll wrap up here now. And even after this podcast here now tonight, I'm gonna be cracking on with the next episode. Which, yeah, it was taking a long time, as I said at the start. But um, I'm finally. Uh, it's finally formulating in my mind now the kind of uh approach i'm going to take to it so i'm excited about that um yeah it's going to be a good one i think uh to be yeah actually all of the episodes so far i've been really um happy with <laughs> i've listened back to most of them because well actually all of them because i have to check for errors and you know did i make a fool of myself and um yeah in the early episodes there was some kind of like, um, yeah, just getting used to the whole um, talking to myself thing. There was some moments where I like forgot what I was saying and things like that. But anyway, it's all just uh, a little fun challenge. So I'm not getting upset about it. <laughs> anyway, I'll stop. Um, yeah, I'll leave, I'll leave it at that. So yeah, that was a taste of another essay that was very profound to me. Um, it was, it was, yeah, like a revelation to me. Uh, but this time around, as is the case with everything, the more we get used to something, the less, um, the less we are stimulated by it. So if this was your first time hearing this essay, it was possibly more stimulating to you than it was to me this time around. <laughs> but like, I know when I read it first, it was really stimulating. So that's why I said I would read it because maybe someone else would have the same will have that same effect if it's their first time hearing it. So, yeah. So, yeah, I think it was worth it. We'll see if I'll um, do the rest of the essay. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I'm just really surprised at how long it took to, to just read those first 10 pages, uh, an hour and a half. So, anyway, it's probably one hour and 45 minutes now. Getting close to that. Yep, it is 43. All right. So, I shall leave it at that. Peace and love. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, please say hi. Uh, follow on Facebook and Instagram, or or just I kind of am using Instagram more, and then I can whatever I do on the Instagram, I have an option to just send it to the Facebook. I'm kind of I'm kind of liking Instagram a bit more. Anyway, so uh, see you on Instagram. <laughs> say hi, please. <laughs> that would be cool. Okay, until next time. Ciao, ciao.